Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I hope you do. I want to encourage you to open them to Genesis 22. Genesis 22, as you're finding your place there in God's Word, I want to welcome uh, the venue service that's joining us right now via live stream right down the hall, and also welcome Reach Church DeSoto. Reach Church, we're glad to have you with us as well this morning as we look into God's Word. Genesis 22. In the life of Abraham, we're learning what it looks like to, to walk with God by means of faith. And God has brought Abraham over mountains and he's brought him through valleys and he has stretched him and he has grown him. He has turned the laughter of unbelief into the laughter of fulfilled faith. But what Abraham is going to learn is that the the life of faith is not all laughter. In fact, I think the most painful test, the most painful trial that Abraham will face is the one that's ahead of him that we're going to look at this morning. And I think all of us at some point or another can identify with how quickly the trials that God brings us into sometimes are incredibly painful. And they can be incredibly dark. And what Abraham is going to learn, what he has learned, is that the secret of going on with God in obedience, when obedience seems hard and even painful, is trusting that God really is good. And his plan and his purposes are always perfect. And what God did in Abraham's life is what he's going to do in all of our lives as well. Grow us and stretch us and bring us to a place of absolute trust and obedience to him. So with that in mind, let's pray together, then we'll work our way through this text. Father, we thank you that you have recorded for us the life of Abraham that we might learn what it looks like to follow you and to trust in you and to obey you even when obedience appears to harm what we value most. God, teach us more about yourself and the joy of walking in absolute trust and limitless faith. And we pray this all In Christ's name, amen. Look with me there in verse 1 of chapter 22. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. Again, we find God testing Abraham. In the New Testament, we would often refer to this. In fact, Peter talks about it as proving our faith, the testing or the proving out of our faith, the purifying of our faith, that God, by means of tests, is bringing us to a place of absolute trust and obedience. And A lot of people ask, why does God trust us? It's not because he's mean or hurtful. It's because God knows that the only life that's truly worth living is a life of absolute trust. That if you want to know the real riches of the joy of walking with Jesus, you got to come to a place where you trust him completely. And so God is bringing Abraham to this place by the the means of these tests. Look into verse 2. He said, take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. 
Notice first how God uh, refers to Isaac. Take now your son. Take your only son. Take your only son whom you love. God is saying to Abraham, I don't want Lot. I don't want your servant Eliezer. And I don't want Ishmael. God is putting his finger on the area of Abraham's life that he loves and he treasures and he values most. God is going to see just how far Abraham will go in his obedience to God. And it's a profound mystery that we see here. Some of the commentators, if you read them about this passage, they'll talk about how Child sacrifice in many of the cultures of that day, that, that, that was somewhat commonplace. And that's all well and good, but, but what, what do we know about how God feels about child sacrifice? God makes it very explicit in Numbers 20 that God forbids it, that anybody caught participating in child sacrifice is to be put to death. God hates child sacrifice. And yet here it appears as though he's leading Abraham into it. It's a mysterious, it's, it's an unreasonable command that's compounded by the fact that the promise that Abraham has been resting his life upon for the last 50 years, that God promised him, that Abraham sometimes strayed from, but God continually brought him back to, was the promise of what? It was the promise of a son. And now that God has given Abraham a son, it appears as though God is taking that son away. And we certainly wouldn't fault Abraham for thinking to himself, what kind of God am I following here? What kind of crazy plan is this? And yet, what is the response of Abraham? Look at verse 3. So Abraham rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham raised his eyes and saw the place from a distance. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we'll, we'll worship and return to you. What's the response of Abraham? Immediate obedience. No hesitation. No negotiation. And the question that we've got to ask is, how in the world could I, Abraham, because this is not always the way that he's responded. How in the world could Abraham respond in this kind of obedience in light of such an unreasonable request on the part of God? And I think the answer is quite simple. That Abraham at his heart knew that this was God's command. And Abraham at this point in his life, at this point his life has learned that whatever God called him to do, he could trust God without reservation. That he may not understand where God is leading him, but he does know that God is leading him into it. And this is the secret of going on with God in obedience. Even when going on with God in obedience promises no liberty, even when going on with God in obedience appears hurtful and harmful to the things that we value the most, the key of going on with God in obedience, even in the midst of these most unreasonable commands, is understanding the goodness of God and the perfection of his promises. Certainly, this is what Abraham has now learned. 
And what do we know? We know that God did have a purpose, didn't he? And the purpose was not the death of Isaac. God didn't want the death of Isaac. What he wanted was what? The life of Abraham. But Abraham didn't understand that, not at this point anyway. Although it is apparent that Abraham understood that God wouldn't go back on his promise. How do we know that? Well, what does he say to the young men? He says to them, you stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go over there and we will worship and return to you. Abraham's saying what? We're coming back. Abraham knows in the midst of all the uncertainties, I don't know how it's going to happen, but me and that boy are coming back because God is always faithful to his promises. And what has God promised Abraham? He's promised him that your descendants are going to be named through this boy Isaac. And Isaac can't have descendants if he dies on that mountain. So he may not know exactly how or in what way, but he knows this. God always comes through on his promises. Now the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews eleven nineteen 19 says he considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead. Folks, that's faith. That he was trusting that God could bring him back from the dead. So Abraham knew no matter how bleak the circumstances, no matter how dark the cloud of God's commands, God was able to fulfill his promise. The boy and I are going to go over there and worship and we'll return. Now notice too how Abraham refers to this sacrifice. He says, me and the boy are going to go over there and do what? We're going to what? Worship. You know, this is the first time that we see the word worship in the Bible. And what is worship referring to here? Is Abraham saying to the young men, we're going to go over there and sing some songs. I'm going to pull out the the guitar and we're going to sing some songs. Is he saying, me and the boy are going to go over there and go to church? No, you know what worship was to Abraham? Worship was taking that which you value and you treasure the most and laying it down before God in a recognition of who he is. Folks, that's worship. And so in verse 6 it says what? Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac his son. and He took in his hand the fire and the knife so the two of them walked on together. In verse 7, Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, My father, and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And there's so much there. We, we could spend an entire morning on that one question. Where is the lamb? Because that is the question of the Old Testament. It's where is the lamb? All those sacrifices and offered in the Old Testament could never atone for the sins of man. They were intended to point them to their need of a Savior. And so the question that resounds throughout the Old Testament is where is the Lamb? In fact, the last words of the prophet Malachi in the Old Testament is that the forerunner will come and he will announce the coming of the Savior and John the Baptist arrives in the New Testament and he sees Jesus and what does he say? Behold the Lamb of God. You know, that's the first time the word lamb is used in the New Testament. Where's the lamb? Here he is. Well, verse 8, Abraham said, God will provide for himself the the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. 
So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place in which God had told them. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, don't stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. As Abraham and Isaac walk together, you see a picture of intimacy and fellowship. Isaac is walking in perfect obedience to the Father's will. And I think it's important to know that Isaac at this moment, and there's some discrepancy over his exact age, but all the commentators that are read agree that he's at least 25 years old. Do you, do you understand that? Does that change how you view this story? Because I think most of us, we don't view it, Isaac as 25 years old. A lot of the traditional rabbinic scholars see him to be 37 in his mid-30s. Does that remind you of another lad that walked up a mountain? But here's the point you're intended to see here. If Isaac is 25 years old, a young man in all his youthful strength, and Abraham is 125 years old, the picture that you're intended to see is that if Isaac doesn't want to ascend that mountain, do you think Abraham's going to be able to stop him? Not a chance. The only way Isaac goes is if he goes willingly in perfect submission to his father, Abraham. You might even say he's led like a lamb to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears. Abraham comes to the point of taking the knife to slay his son. God waits to the very last moment. It wasn't enough just to saddle the donkey It wasn't enough to take a three-day's journey. It wasn't enough to split the wood, and it wasn't enough to lay the boy on the altar. Because when it comes to commitment, close isn't good enough. God waits to the moment when he brings the knife up. And what happens? It says, the angel of the Lord appeared. Now, we've talked about this as we've read through the Genesis narrative and we've seen the angel of the Lord. And I truly believe with all my heart that this is a pre-incarnate image of Christ. We know it's God because he refers to himself as God. But folks, do you see the picture here, how powerful this is? As Abraham is about to slay his son, Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, prevents him and says, not now. And God says, now I know. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Now I know. Now did God already know Abraham's heart? Absolutely he did. So why put him through this? Why bring it to this point? Because God wants to see his obedience demonstrated in a physical way. Do you understand that? God doesn't long for a people who simply talk about how much they love him. He longs to find a people who will obey him. 
There's so many people that say, well, I love the word and I admire the word. Can I tell you today, God longs not for a people who say, I love the word and I admire the word. God longs for a people who do the word. Because it's possible to to be theoretically committed to the word of God and yet live in sin and disobedience. Anybody ever been there? And so God brings Abraham to a place of absolute and and total obedience. And God says, now I know because you have not withheld your son. Abraham, now I know because you held nothing back. And of all the things I think that sometimes we long to hear God say to us one day, and I know all of us think, I hope and pray that all of us pray one day we'll hear God say those words, well done, good and faithful servant. But as I was studying this, this text, you know one of the things that I long to hear God say to me one day? You held nothing back. In your faith and trust in me, you held nothing. But do you see what God is longing for in Abraham's life? You see what God is longing for in my life and your, your life? Throughout God's word, God is longing for a people who will trust him and obey him. How many times have you ever said to your children, maybe me and Faith are the only ones that have ever said this, but maybe you've ever said, When will you ever learn to just do what you're told? It goes much better that way. But oh, how many times I wonder if God has not said of me. When will you learn to just do what you're told? Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Such simple words, but such so profound truth, amen? But that's what God is longing for in our lives. In verse 13, Abraham raised his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it's said to this day, in the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. What an amazing moment for Abraham. Just as he's about to take the life of his son, God provides. God provides a substitutionary sacrifice to take the place of his son so that Isaac might live. And God renames the place. It will now be known as Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. I think there's a powerful picture here because that, that name of God, Jehovah Jireh, gets thrown around in a lot of different situations. But note the primary context of the birth of that name of God. It's not about finances. It's not about paying the bills or the provision of a job or a car, although God does provide those things. But the primary context of Jehovah Jireh is God providing a substitutionary sacrifice so that Isaac, the boy, may live. We come to the New Testament and God becomes Jehovah Jireh because he has provided the ultimate sacrifice in his son Jesus so that you and I might live. Jehovah Jireh. And then 
we see the reward. Look at verses 15 through 24. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I'll greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. And God reiterates the same promise that he's reiterated over and over again to Abraham. That I'm going to give you a son. You're going to become a nation. and They're going to have land. Promises that God has made over and over. But now in Abraham's ultimate and absolute absolute obedience, now God says we're going to crank the blessings into motion. And then look in verse 19. So Abraham returned to his young men and they arose and went together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. Now it came about after these things that it was told Abraham saying, Behold, Milcah has also borne children to your brother Nahor. And, and uh, these vor- verses almost seem inconsequential. You say, what, what, what are these verses even doing here? God just comes to Abraham and says, hey, you're going to have nephews. Well, that, what big deal. What, what's that about? Well, you go on. And by the way, if you're looking for names for two boys, right here in 21, Uz and Buzz. Uz, his firstborn, and Buzz, his brother, and Kimuel, the father of Aram, and Kesed, and Hazo, and Pildash, and Jidlaf and Bethuel, and Bethuel became the father of who? Rebecca. Folks, this is so good. Do you know what God's telling Abraham? I'm already at work providing a little girl for that boy of yours. And they're going to have children. And then they're going to become 12 tribes. And then they're going to become this great nation just as I promised. But I think the picture that we need to see here is that Abraham's obedience doesn't just affect him, right? Abraham's obedience, what he's learning, the riches and the fullness of God's reward is not just blessing in his life, but in blessing for generations to come after him. That there will be generations of people and an entire nation of people who will rise up in the morning and call Abraham blessed because he obeyed God. And the question we need to ask ourselves is, will there be generations of people who come after us who will rise up and call us blessed because of our obedience today? Absolute obedience, total trust. Two points I want to drive home before we, before we close. First is theological, and if you miss this, you've missed the greater meaning of the entire text. You can't miss this. Because in the story of Abraham and Isaac, right here, chapter 22, we get a powerful picture of atonement. The atonement, we get a picture of substitutionary sacrifice for salvation. That God is getting down on our level and giving us a glimpse into his own heart when he gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. See, it's hard for me sometimes to get my, my mind around or to identify with God giving his one and only son. But I have a little bit easier time identifying with Abraham, a man just like me. And Abraham has this boy that he, that he raises and he loves and he, he grows in fellowship with this boy. And there's intimacy and they're just, there's just a friendship, a deep bond that he has with Isaac. And then God calls him to lay Isaac on an altar. 
And boy, that drives this home to me. And if you're a parent, it probably drives it home for you. Because if you have children, you know that those children are your flesh and blood. They're your legacy, your life. In so many situations, as our children go through pain and struggle, we do anything to trade places with them. Because we love our children. And then we ask ourselves, would you give your children up for somebody? Would you give your child up for a good person? Would you give your child up for a righteous person? But do you know what the Bible says about what God did? In Romans chapter 5, verse 6, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good one, someone might dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God didn't give his son up for good people. He gave his son up for sinners like you and me. And if we're not careful, we'll begin to view the atonement and God giving his son as an android offering a robot and we'll forget that God is an emotional God and we are made in his image. And the offering of his son was a gut-wrenching sacrifice that was birthed out of his deep love for you. That God took his one and only begotten son who was perfectly obedient to the father. He was the son in whom the father was well pleased. And he took him by the hand and he led him up this same mountain. Do you know what Moriah becomes? It is renamed later. Second Chronicles 3. It becomes Jerusalem. Moriah is Calvary. And God will take his one and only begotten son, whom he loves, in whom is all his delight, and he will take him by the hand, and the son will be perfectly obedient to the father's will, and the wood will be placed on his back, and he will mount that hill, and there on that Christ, on that cross, Christ will die as a substitutionary sacrifice unto the wrath of God for our sins. And God becomes Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides salvation for those who trust and believe in Jesus. What an indescribable gift God has given in his son. Does God love you? On the authority of God's holy word today, I tell you, that he gave his only son for you. And if that doesn't tell you how much God loves you, nothing ever will. He can go no further than this. And out of this comes the great question. How do you respond? How do you respond to that kind of demonstration of love? How do, we do, how do we respond to that kind of deity who would love you so much he would give his own son? Is it enough to just kind of tip the hat and say thank you and just go on about your day? Is it enough to, to go to church a few times a year and say, boy, I checked the box. He ought to be grateful I'm around. Is it enough to throw a few dollars in the plate? 
Is it enough just to say a quick blessing over a meal a couple times a day? You know what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, verse 1? Therefore, I urge you, brethren, in light of the mercies of God, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, which is your spiritual act of worship. Do you know what that word spiritual means? It's a Greek word. It's the Greek word logicane. Do you know what Paul is saying? The only logical response, the only reasonable response to this kind of demonstration of mercy and grace is to offer all of our lives back in service to him. Why? Why would we hold nothing back? Because he held nothing back. Why do we cling to nothing as dear or sacred except him? Because he clung to nothing as dear or sacred in need of our salvation. See, Christianity is not just asking God to bless your life. It is giving all of your life to him in service. And you know what's beautiful about this? When did Abraham find his created purpose? When did Abraham really discover life? He found it when he laid Isaac on the altar. He found it when he came to a place of absolute obedience. When do you and I find our created purpose? The Bible says whoever desires to save his life will lose it. Whatever loses it for my sake will find it. The word of God says unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. I'm here to tell you today, you want to find real life. You want to know the riches and the fullness of the joy of Jesus Christ today. You will find it when you come to a place of absolute trust and total obedience to God. See, I believe there's so many Christians out there today. And they're miserable. And they're making everybody around them miserable too. And you know why they're miserable? Because they're living with feet in both worlds. They think, I want to have all my goodies and my stuff of the world over here, but I also want a little Jesus and some fire insurance. They're going to try to serve two masters. See, that's the great lie of Satan. You can have both. And what happens is, they got too much of Jesus to ever be satisfied in the world. And they got too much of the world to ever really know the joy of Jesus. And they're living in no man's land. And I'm here to tell you today, you really want to know the joy of Jesus? It comes when you stop straddling the fence. And you come to a place of absolute trust. And whatever you give up, whatever Isaac you lay on the altar, know this today. Whatever you're holding back in service to God, 
it is rubbish in comparison to knowing Christ. You know that song, Knowing You, Jesus, all I once held dear and built my life upon. All this world reveres and wars to own. All I once thought gain, I've now counted loss, spent and worthless now compared to this. Knowing you, Jesus. What are you holding back today? I want to invite you just to, to bow your heads and close your eyes right where you're at this morning. It's just you and God this morning. Just you and God. And the question that I would have for you this morning is, is there anything you're holding back? Have you set limits on your obedience to God? I'll go here, but not there. You can have this, but not that. Just you and God this morning. Would you do business with the one who gave his son for you? The one who loves you, the one who wants to bring you into the fullness of his joy and the riches of his grace. Would you talk with him this morning? Maybe you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. Maybe you've never thought about your own sin. Maybe you've never thought about Christ who died on a cross for your sins. And maybe you're realizing right now for the very first time that in order for me to be forgiven, somebody had to die. That's the idea of sacrificial substitution. The substitutionary atonement, as we call it, it simply means that we needed somebody to die in our place. We'd sinned and somebody has to pay. And the only sacrifice that would be worthy of supplying us with forgiveness and redemption would be if God himself came. And that's exactly what he did. Christ came and he died on a cross for our sins. He took our place that we might have life. That Christ went to Calvary and there was no voice from heaven saying, spare the lad. There was no ram caught in the thicket. All the symbols were fulfilled in the substance of Jesus Christ. And he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. If you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Jesus. You need to know this. He's the only way. He's not a way. He is the way. He's the way to God because he's keeping with the truth of God and therefore he alone bestows life and if you don't know him this morning would you just take a moment and cry out to him for forgiveness would you trust in him as your personal Lord and Savior right now wherever you're seated just call upon him the Bible says whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved Father, we thank you this morning for the gift of salvation that you've provided in, in your son Jesus who died in our place. Thank you for the powerful picture we've seen of that demonstration of sacrifice right here in the story of Abraham and Isaac. God, help us. In light of the one who held nothing back for our salvation, I pray that in service to you we would hold nothing back. 
there's somebody here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would trust in you today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.